Welcome to season three of the Bible for My Ordinary Life podcast. My name is Alicia Parker and I'll be your host. Are you interested in what the Bible really means or wondering how it's relevant to life today? If so, this podcast is for you. In this season, we are going back to where it all begins, the book of Genesis. No matter what your age or your background or your experience is with the Bible, I believe you can find something fresh and meaningful every time you study it. Hi, my name's Ariana. The Bible is for everyone. <laughs> Thanks, Ariana. All right, friends, let's get started. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These are the opening words of our English Bibles. And if you believe this statement, the whole rest of the Bible is quite believable. This verse establishes that there's a higher power, that our lives are not accidental, but intended, and that there is a plan now, just as there was in the beginning. Genesis is the historical narrative that frames the other 65 books of the Bible. In these chapters, we will see a storyline unfold that continues all the way until the book of Revelation. So I'm really excited for the season three of the Bible for the Ordinary Life podcast because we are going to tackle the first half of Genesis. There are so many great resources and teachings about this book that honestly, I hardly feel qualified to even attempt to teach these chapters. But I find this book so critical to the foundation of our faith that I want to take us on the best journey I can to uncover as much as we can about our Genesis, our beginnings. You see, the word Genesis means beginning. It comes from a Latin word meaning birth. This book is about our birth as part of creation. And although the actual events of creation are covered in the first two chapters, the rest of the book is about the birth of a nation, the nation of Israel, which God chose to bring about his plan and blessing to the whole world. Now, today, we're going to talk through as much of Genesis 1 as we can without me pushing the limits of our time together. And if this is a familiar story to you or you think you know the story of creation, don't tune out too early. I have a few things I want us to wrestle with that might not have ever come up in a Sunday school class. Honestly, after studying Genesis 1 and 2, I feel like I could do a 10-week session on just these chapters, but in the interest of not dragging this out and losing listeners for lack of momentum, I'm going to condense what I've read into some meaningful key points. It may not feel condensed at first because I do want to take the time to tease apart the words in verse 1 to get us started. Now, speaking of getting started, let's start with the words that we first read in the beginning, since the beginning seems like a good place to begin. Okay, so in the beginning, this phrase in Hebrew is literally referring to the beginning of all things. Some people try to translate this as in the beginning of God's creation. And then from that propose that there is a gap between Genesis 1-1 and the next verse, Genesis 1-2. And in that gap, they say that the earth ages by millions or billions of years. And this is an attempt to rectify the biblical account with scientific theories of today. And if this is what you've been taught or what you've come to believe, I, I can respect that. However, after reading a lot of literature and studying this text at this time in my life, I do not think there's a gap in Genesis. I think this first phrase simply means to orientate the reader 
to the time when things began to exist, the beginning of space, time, and matter. I see it more as a topic sentence for the next few verses. In the common English Bible, it's translated like this. When God began to create the heavens and the earth. And the message translates it this way. First this, God created the heavens and the earth. All you see, all you don't see. These are great ways to think about the original Hebrew in our more modern English. After all, we are reading a narrative first composed by a speaker of ancient Hebrew. And ancient Hebrew is, well, it's ancient. <laughs> talking the way Genesis is written would sound like someone talking in Shakespearean English does to our modern ears. So the translation is even more challenging because not only are we trying to find English words to convey what is meant in Hebrew, we're also dealing with very, very old Hebrew. And we need to remember that the original author did not speak English and certainly not the English we speak today. So just like I've talked about thinking like a first century Jew in other podcasts where we've studied the Gospel of John and the letter to the Ephesians, I'm going to be asking you to think like an ancient Israelite a lot during our time in Genesis. It's important that we're constantly aware of our propensity to sort of superimpose our worldview and our cultural experiences on top of the Bible. And we need to guard against that. So back to this opening statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, let's talk about the word God. And again, the original Hebrew is important. The word here is translated Elohim. And that word can be used as a plural or a singular. Most often it's plural, but here it's translated as singular based on context. Now, I listened to a podcast called The Bible Project, and I love the way one of the hosts, Tim Mackey, explains this concept in the series that they did on God. We don't actually do a good job of translating the Hebrew words for God into English. Tim explains that this term would be better translated as spiritual being. The Hebrew word, he says, is a title, not a name. But for us, in modern English, we see the word capital G-O-D, and we envision whatever concept we have for the God of the Bible. We see and hear that as his name. But to an ancient Israelite, this wasn't a name. It was a word that could be used in other contexts to also describe other spiritual beings. And I know, as an English-speaking modern Christian, what I'm saying is already starting to sound very different from the Sunday School version of Creation Week, but stick with me. Genesis wasn't originally written in English for us. It was written for ancient Israelites, and in their vocabulary and spoken communication, this word Elohim did not mean the name of the God of the universe. It was a general term, a title, and it did refer to who we call capital G-O-D. Now, for an example of how this plays out in another ancient Israelite scripture, let's take a look at Psalm 97.9, where it says this, For you, O Yahweh, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all the gods. And the last word there, gods, is Elohim. The same word from Genesis 1.1. Now, you might have recognized the word Yahweh from the first half of the verse, 
That's the name God gave the Israelites to call him. And so what the psalmist is saying is, for you, Yahweh, the supreme being that I worship, the God of heaven, you are most high over the earth. You are exalted above all spiritual beings. And honestly, that sounds a little better to our ears. Because if you grew up like I did, you were taught that there was only one God. So a verse like Psalm 97.9, it's a little bothersome when we use the English word little g God to describe other spiritual beings. In our church vocabulary, all little g gods are false gods. They don't exist. So the fact that a psalmist indicates that they exist by saying God is exalted above them can be confusing. But if you consider it, the actual meaning of the word spiritual beings, not little g gods, suddenly it seems okay because angels and demons are spiritual beings and God is most certainly exalted above them. So let's think of Genesis 1 as in the beginning, the supreme spiritual being created the heavens and the earth. And that's probably closer to what the ancient Israelites would have understood this to mean. Now, let's take a look at the next word here. The word create means to bring into existence. And this is different from words used to describe forming or making. If you form or make something, you have some raw materials to work with. But to create, as it is used here, means you literally bring it into existence. And that is what Elohim is doing here. He is bringing something into existence, the heavens and the earth. Now, just like the word Elohim, which can be translated as singular or plural, the word for heavens can be singular or plural. And our best modern understanding of the word heavens is probably something like space, like our entire universe. And I think this first verse is a summary statement of what is below in the following verses. And again, others believe this is a specific creation act, then there's a gap, and then there's a second creation act beginning in verse 2. But taken as a whole phrase, the heavens and the earth is most likely an indication of creating all of the universe and the planets that exist. So if you consider this, the opening verse, like a topic sentence, introducing us to the concept of creation, and then the details about how this unfolded being in the following verses, it makes sense. There are those who are convinced that God created the heavens and the earth, and then there was a gap of time, and then Genesis 1-2 happened, and the rest of the chapter describes a second creation. Now, am I making you feel anxious yet about what you learned in church about creation versus what I'm grappling with here? Let me be very honest with you about my own journey, and maybe that'll help. I grew up in a pretty fundamental church, and honestly, I'm really thankful for that upbringing. I learned a lot. I have a solid foundation thanks to dedicated Sunday school teachers, vacation Bible school volunteers, Awana's workers, and my own two parents. I even went to a Christian college where everyone gets a minor in Bible. I also got a bachelor's degree in biology and taught high school biology for a number of years. I was very convicted of a literal six-day creation and a young earth of 10,000 years or less. And honestly, I'm still pretty convinced of those teachings. But on my journey, I realized that Genesis 1 wasn't written by a scientist with the purpose of trying to explain how God formed the world. 
Now, I love reading creation science articles, and I'm very interested in researching things like how the fossil record and carbon dating and science in general meshes or doesn't mesh with the Bible. But whether the heavens and the earth in this verse refer to our specific globe or the whole universe or a big swirling mess of the elements on the periodic table, I've come to realize that's a secondary matter. That nugget of truth isn't the purpose of Genesis 1. The original author was narrating the Israelite origin story in a way that mirrored his contemporary origin stories of other belief systems. And yet, he distinguished this one from the others. Now, I could probably dedicate pages of research and hours of recorded time talking about creation science, and I would honestly probably really enjoy that. But my purpose in this podcast is to teach the Bible for everyday, ordinary people with the hope that it inspires you to get to know God better. And I just don't think the purpose of Genesis 1 is to teach us science. I like to chase those ideas and discuss them. I like finding connections between the Bible and archaeology and science and history. But I think the purpose of Genesis 1 is to teach us about Elohim. I think... This is about our origins in relation to our creator, not the step-by-step guide of creation. And while it might inform our scientific curiosity about the how of creation to some degree, I just don't think that's the primary purpose. So in the beginning, God, or Elohim, the supreme being, created the heavens and the earth. And this statement orientates us to the God of the Israelites, and it says creation comes from him. This was a narrative for ancient Israelites to explain their origins and establish that the beginning starts with the God they have a relationship with. Okay, we've covered verse one. (laughs) Let's move on to verse two and get a little deeper here. It says this, Now the earth was without shape and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the watery deep, but the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. So we have this word we use in our contemporary language that we translate earth. This earth, or land, or planet, was without shape and empty. And your Bible might say formless and void. You get the idea. And there was darkness over the surface of the watery deep. Now, the watery deep is in reference to this unformed chaos. Water is an important element in all ancient creation stories, and rightly so. Without water, there is no life. Think about how important it is to modern scientists and space enthusiasts that we find evidence of water on other planets. Where there is water, there can be life. The watery deep is this imagery of a deep, chaotic ocean, but not necessarily ocean here on planet Earth as we know it today. I can get up from my chair right now and drive about 10 minutes and stand in the Atlantic Ocean. It's watery and it's deep, but it's not the watery deep of this verse. It's that unformed, chaotic mess of matter. So in verse 2, we have this formless, empty, chaotic, watery, deep space, and the Spirit of God is present. Not just present, but moving. This word, translated moving, can also mean hovering. And the image might be of a mother bird hovering over her chicks. And it's the Spirit of God, which is the same word as breath or wind. 
So imagine a mighty wind swirling about, moving and hovering over this created mass of unformed stuff. Yeah, stuff. Not very scientific or scholarly, is it? But again, we aren't reading a modern story written by a modern geophysicist, are we? No. We're reading an ancient origin story written for ancient Israelites who spoke ancient Hebrew. What's going on in verse 2 is what some people will take and equate with a big bang during the primordial soup stage of Earth. Now, I know others are reluctant to marry secular scientific explanation with the language of Genesis, but I don't think the original author was trying to explain the chemistry behind our origins. This isn't a how to create the Earth or a creation for dummies manual. It's a narrative that opens a storyline which ultimately points to Jesus as humanity's savior. So, rather than take this as a way to understand the science of our origins, I think he's setting the stage for the story of origins and for those who believe in Elohim by making this about Elohim. Elohim, a supreme spiritual being, has a spirit and it hovered. Now, let's move on to verse 3. And for good measure, I'll read through verse 5. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. So God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. There was evening and there was morning, marking the first day. So now we have God speaking. His spirit was hovering in verse 2. But now he speaks light into existence. Now, as a former biology teacher, I had to know a lot about light. It's a critical component of photosynthesis, which is a big piece of biology. Light is both a particle and a wave. And there are characteristics of light like amplitude and wavelength. And there's lots of types of light that exist, some that we can see and some that we cannot. In verse 3, God creates light, which is noted as separate from darkness. Then he named the light day and the darkness night. So if you grew up in a church like mine, you might have actually sat in a Sunday school class in a small plastic chair like I did, and your Sunday school teacher might have had a flannel graph set or perhaps some coloring pages like mine did. And on day one of creation, you learned that God created light and darkness. Oh, but actually, darkness wasn't created. Only light was. It was separated from darkness, and both were given a name. Now, in our modern context, night and day are determined by the sun and the moon. But at this point in the narrative, neither of those two celestial bodies have been created. And we could scratch our heads and protest and debate and argue and conduct thought experiments. And all of that could be fun or interesting. But at the end of it all, we only have what we have here in scripture. We don't have universe creation for dummies. So how do we have a day and a night without a sun and a moon? Because... God said so. And if I can believe verse one, that in the beginning he created the heavens and the earth, then I don't have to worry about how verse three could be possible. It just can. He's God. So we have the first day, the creation of light and its separation from darkness. And now the question, what is a day? Is it a literal 24 hours? Or can it be an unstructured amount of time which would help us account for science's claim that the Earth is millions of years old? As you would probably guess from my earlier statements, I tend to think that a day is just what it says it is, a day. 
if the original author had meant a large gap of time in between each creation day, I think he would have said so. There's no reason to use a figurative day in the text as it is. The word here is most often used as a literal 24-hour period, a day. So you might have come across teachings that the days of Genesis 1 could actually mean millions of years. And if that's what you believe, really, that's okay with me. Because again, I think that's secondary to the point here. I think the point is about who, not how. Okay, so day one is complete. Let's pick back up in verse 6 and read about day two. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from water above. It was so. God called the expanse sky. There was evening and there was morning, a second day. So in the next part of this narrative, God creates an expanse which separates waters into two layers. And he called this space between the waters sky. I also remember this flannel graph image during Sunday school, as well as this spot on the coloring page of the creation story. We saw a watery deep in verse two, and now we've got this image of that being separated with a spacious layer in the middle. And again, we have the evening and the morning and the declaration that this is the second day. And I'm even more convinced that this is a literal day since we're numbering them at this point. But I do realize that there are people very convicted that each day in Genesis 1 is a large expanse of time and therefore could accommodate the theory of evolution. And if that's you, let's still be friends. Our stance on this topic doesn't change the gospel message, right? All right. Verses 9 and 10 introduce the third day. And here's what they say. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and gathered waters he called seas. God saw it was good. So three days of creation. We've got three major things that have happened. First, God created light and he separated it from darkness. Then God created an expanse and separated it from the waters. And then God created the land and gathered up the seas to separate it from the land. Did you catch the pattern of creating and separating? In this first half of creation, God has created light, water, sky, and land. And in the second half of creation, he's going to fill all those places. And the second half really begins on day three. Because he doesn't just create the land, he also populates it. Let's pick back up with verse 11. God said, Let the land produce vegetation, plants yielding seeds and trees on the land bearing fruit with seeds in it according to their kinds. It was so. The land produced vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seeds in it according to their kinds. God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, and a third day. Each day of creation is marked with a morning and an evening. And at the conclusion of the first and the third day, we read that God saw that it was good. It's minor, I know, but did you like I learned that God said it was good? If so, we learned it wrong. The Hebrew word here is saw, as in see, perceive, look, discern. Nothing yet about this is the verb for speak. Now, I don't have a major theological revelation here about the difference between whether God saw 
or spoke that it was good. I'm just rereading Genesis and I'm realizing I have a lot of assumptions about things I thought were there, but they aren't. So if you grew up learning these stories, let me again encourage you to read them again. Read them closely and truly consider what the text says. You might learn something new. Now we're going to wrap things up for today. And in our next episode, we're going to talk more about the plants, how God most likely created multiple copies of full-grown plants, and the implications for that as we move through the creation story. But for today, let's pause here and consider a few questions. Did the first 13 verses of Genesis read like a how to create the universe text? I don't think so. Are there some clues in here as to how God created the universe? Yes, yes, there certainly are some details and a set of sequences. But this narrative story was written for an ancient Israelite culture that was surrounded by other ancient cultures, and they all had their own origin stories. And you can dig a lot deeper into this if you check out the Bible Project's podcast series on ancient cosmology. Origin stories are not about creation science, as interesting and as fascinating as that topic can be. And believe me, I'm interested. So what's the text about? Or better asked, who is the text about? The text introduces the main character of the narrative that follows. Elohim in Hebrew, God in English. The one true supreme being who started it all. The narrative is about him creating our world, and eventually us via our ancestors. The narrative introduces us to God and sets the stage for our purpose to answer the question of why we are even here. And what I've come to understand at this point in my life is that understanding the who and growing in my relationship with him is far more important than gathering all the knowledge about the how. Now, Genesis 1 is fascinating to me, but not because of all the possibilities of the science behind the creation, because of the God I love behind the creation. He will be the focus of this series. This is his story, which explores his nature and our role and relationship with him. Now, I hope that excites you and you're on board with digging into Genesis in pursuit of him. Thank you so very much for taking the time to listen to today's episode of The Bible for the Ordinary Life. My name is Alicia Parker. I hope you learned something and our time together encouraged your personal relationship with God. Be sure to check out my companion website at www.bibleforteordinarylife.com or connect with me on Instagram at Bible for the Ordinary Life.